Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In the clandestine service, protecting our sources is above and beyond the most important thing we do. Maybe the place to start here is, is at the very top, Vladimir Putin. And what about Russia's role in the world? How does he see that? What are his objectives with regard to foreign policy? I think um, now he sees a very sort of zero-sum game. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypherbrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. John Seifer is a career CIA operations officer who served his country with distinction for nearly 30 years, rising to the highest levels of the agency, including three separate stints as a CIA chief of station. While working on a wide range of issues and in a wide variety of locations around the world, he spent a great deal of time focused on the Soviet Union and then Russia. He is considered an expert on the subject of Russian intelligence. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with John and talk about Russia, its malign activities around the globe, and what the United States needs to do about it. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. John, it is uh, great to see you, and it is great to have you on the show. My pleasure. This is exciting. So I want to get to Russia, which dominates the news in a variety of ways, as you know. But I also want to give our listeners a sense of uh, of your background and uh, and who you are. So you grew up in upstate New York. I did. Um, the son of teachers. Yeah. How did you get interested in, in international affairs? Well, it's interesting. I think my, my parents, my dad was a professor, my mom was a librarian. So we always had books around and, and you know, growing up in the '60s, you know, near a college campus, there was always activity and and uh, political activity and things. So I was always interested, sort of, in, in history more. What did necessarily. your dad teach? He was a history professor, mostly American history, and my mother was a librarian in the school system. And so I was always interested in history, you know, in politics, and that was sort of always a 
you know, something that was being discussed at the dinner table and those type of things. Uh, I went to school and I studied history in undergraduate and went to uh, Columbia for graduate school in international affairs. Um, I had studied in undergraduate. I'd gone to London for a semester, and that was really my first time out of the, you know out of the country. And I, I found that you know invigorating and exciting, and knew I wanted to do something related to to international affairs. I didn't really know what that was. Uh, and at Columbia, in between my two years, I did a uh, internship at the State Department INR at the Intelligence and Research Branch of the State Department. That's their part of the intelligence community. That's right. And as part of that, I learned a little bit more how the community works, a little bit about you know, the foreign policy and, and the community in, in Washington. What did you work on when you were at INR? Mostly stuff related to the Gulf then, both China and Gulf-related things. But, you know, I was a young – I was sort of helping out on anything I could. And, and INR is different. I mean, there's, it's much more uh, a place, small office, much more senior people who have been in the foreign service or civil service for a long time. It's not a lot of, you know, young people. And so one of the things I was interested in and applied to CIA was there was a place that was a much larger bureaucracy. There was There was a whole – career track where people could start young and work their way up through. Did you and get so, to know CIA a little bit when you were at INR? Uh, yeah, some CIA briefers came over and some people we talked to, but not not in any depth. You know, I probably studied more about it in school than, than at INR. But was it at INR that you decided to apply to the agency? Well, I knew that the agency would be one of the places I would apply. I, I, when I was applying, I was probably more interested in, in, in maybe doing some work in Washington than going to get a PhD. And I, I came in to be an analyst, like Professional analyst, you so, were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You started on that. Track, I did. Right? I did start, and it was funny back then. I think, and then you went to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> no, at the time it was interesting because when you when you went through the application process, as you know, a long application process and polygraph and psychological tests and all these other kind of things. And at one step in the process, I went into an office with an older guy, and he started trying to talk me into to being interested in in what was called in the DO, the clandestine services, and. And I tried to ask him some questions about like, well, what does that mean? What do they do? And he was he he was so just so defensive and didn't explain to me. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah thanks. Uh, I understand what an analyst does. You know, I've been studying. I'm, I might be interested in going back at a PhD. So so I, I stayed in the analytical track. And it wasn't until I went into our sort of what's called now CIA 101 and went through the training there that you know is that I, the old career trainee program? Yeah, CT program, career training program. That's right. And, um, and if I remember correctly, it was only not every analyst went through that. It was, I think they took a select group of new analysts and put them through the CT program. If that's true, I, I don't, I don't know. I thought, so you know, were, I thought everybody, was, I was in there. No, no, you were selected that time. Yeah, I was in there. Steve Slick was a friend of mine. There's a whole group, you know, of both analysts, clandestine service people, you know, admin and support people, technologists and stuff. And in that process and learning about the agency and learning about it, I became more interested in this sort of as a career. The notion of going overseas became more appealing. And I, I switched over. And, and back in those days, I think a lot of it depended on the psychological test you took. So I guess I had done either either well or really poorly on the psychological test. So they allowed me to switch over to the, the DO, to the clandestine side of the house. And I know some others wanted to switch and weren't, weren't allowed to at the time. Right. Your first assignment was on the old Soviet division. <laughs> That's right. right. Did you have a particular interest in the Soviet Union? Did they need people there? Why did you end up there? Well, in graduate school, I'd studied Soviet studies and arms control and those things that were, you know, central in the in the Cold War days. And sort of the two big places as you came out of training in the clandestine service were the Soviet division and the Near East division. They seemed to have the most activity, the most focus. And one of the things that the, the Soviet division did, we chased Soviet spies and Soviet diplomats anywhere around the world. So uh, as you know, Michael, the the DO, the clandestine side of the house, is almost a series of sort of, you know, 
tribal warlords. So there's a, you know, there's a Latin America division, an East Asia division, uh, Africa, Europe, Soviet, uh, counterterrorism, counterproliferation. And the Soviet division there during the Cold War days obviously was a main focus and, and it, was, it had a worldwide scope. So you could go to Latin America to try to you know, go after Soviet diplomats to recruit them to become spies in the United States. You could go to Asia to do that, or you could go into the Soviet Union itself. And so that appealed to me that it was it was the primary target of the, of the agency and the U.S. government at the time, and, and it had a worldwide scope. John, to the extent that you can talk about it, what does a CIA operations officer do? Well, in its simplest form, we are trying to develop relationships with potential sources of information that the U.S. government can't get in any other way. As you know, Michael, it you know, should be every year the White House and, and the administration puts together a, you know, a plan of their foreign policy goals and objectives. And then stemming from that plan, all of the different agencies and departments you know, receive their sort of marching orders. So in the intelligence community, there's a thing called the NIPF, which is the National Intelligence Priorities, Priorities Framework. Framework. Yeah, yes, right? I remember. <laughs> Jeez, I, I can't, remember. can't believe I came up with that. <laughs> You know, if the U.S. government is trying to collect, say, on the Iranian uh, missile system or missile program, they will look and say, okay, who in the Defense Department can provide information on this? Who in the State Department can provide information on this? What can our diplomats do? What can the NSA collect? What can CIA collect? And so as they look at the whole of government approach, there should be some stuff that none of the other agencies can do, but it's still of importance to the United States government and then those would be the small subset of things that we need to look to see if it's possible to steal or to develop sources that can provide us better understanding of those programs than we have otherwise. And so we're really sort of a, a value add. We're not out trying to steal everything or collect everything because there's a risk in doing that. And the U.S. government obviously doesn't want to uh, you know, put people at risk for, for no reason. So, so we're looking to get the things that you can't get otherwise. You can't get through diplomatic means, and you can't get through open media and open or source. Or, or even technical intelligence technical. collection, right? If you can do it that way, then, then right. you don't need to risk right. um, recruiting a human source. And I, I've, often, I've always believed that, you know, sometimes, for example, when the State Department started to move back from diplomatic reporting, I think that was a really a bad place for the clandestine service to be in, because what would happen is you and analysts would say, hey, we need this information, and they would often come to us in the clandestine service and say, can you go get it? And the answer is, we always say yes, but it's not the right thing. If we're out getting information that can be gotten in other ways that diplomats can get, I, I don't think that's the best place for the United States government to be because, you know, we do that by, you know, guile and theft and relationships, and there's a risk there. Those, those cases often, not often, but sometimes go wrong, and it causes a, a problem for our foreign policy. So your job as a case officer, which is that's what we call, what we call um, CIA operations officers, is to is to identify people who have access to the information we want, develop relations with them, and ultimately recruit them as spies. So what is it like to sit across the table from somebody and have that conversation? <laughs> well, first of all, it's, it's a very – it can be a very, very strong relationship. You have to have empathy towards the people you're working for. You have to have really a strong understanding of their culture and what makes them tick. And you have to be able to develop a level of, of faith and trust with this person. So if someone is actually willing to you know, commit treason against their own country in order to help the United States on behalf of the individual sitting across the table from them, they have to have sense that that person cares, is careful, and will protect them, understands the issues, understands what motivates them, and can, can provide that for them. So 
it's a variety of things. One of the things that attracted me to the the job is it wasn't it wasn't just single strand. You know, you had to understand the issues well enough so that when you're debriefing someone, you're providing value to the analysts and people who need to understand things. You have to understand the culture well enough that you can appeal to that person and, and understand the, the type of things they're saying and what they're trying to get at. And you also have to have sort of a, the personality that, that draws people in and makes them willing to, to share with you. And then you also have to have, you know, a real sense of uh, of managing risk and security to make sure you can keep that person safe. Because in other organizations, law enforcement organizations, they often call these people snitches in the, you know, that are providing information to help them do their job. In the clandestine service, protecting our sources is above and beyond the most important thing we do. If we can develop a relationship with someone who can provide that information that we can't get any other way and that we can maintain that relationship for years while that person perhaps moves up through their bureaucracy, you know, these people become the jewels of our, our system. And so protecting them is, is, is more important and than you, anything else you, for us. You give them a solemn oath that you're going to do everything you can That's to right. protect them, right? And when you get to know somebody and you realize that, you, you know, the, the work that you're doing is putting them at risk, you take that more seriously. Cause like you said, if you're sitting across the table and you're looking that person in the eye and you know the work you're doing with them is, is quite dangerous for them and could danger their family and – yeah, you automatically take it seriously. Is there a is there a generalization, John, about why why people choose to to work for the United States of America? I don't think there's a generalization. Uh, you know, there's a few sort of shorthands people use sometimes. But one of the things I would say is many of these people that work for the United States, in many ways, are you know as deep of patriots as, as you and I. They they feel that the United States plays an important role in the world, and they're willing to risk their families, risk themselves to help the United States. And there's a number of, of things that might draw that person, that might motivate that person to work for us. And, and some of them are, are positive and some of them are, are negative. You know, a lot of it could be ego. A lot of people in bureaucracies are, are frustrated by, you know, their bosses or they don't think they're being taken seriously. They think that, that they deserve more. And therefore, if someone is willing to sit and listen to them and can get information into the into the United States, into senior policymakers, uh, that appeals to them. That appeals to their ego. Someone is listening to me. My people don't listen. You listen, therefore, I'm willing to work with you. Sometimes it's money or greed. Sometimes people, you know, realize that, uh, you know, this is a means for them to, to make some money and maybe even uh, defect or leave the country. Take care in. of their family in some way? Um, I remember one of my first recruitments, it had to do with an East Bloc during the Cold War days, an East Bloc diplomat whose son had a very dangerous um, like disease, spinal disease, and his government didn't help him at all. And he became more and more frustrated as he tried to get help and they couldn't do it. And, you know, we were able to provide doctors and help and medicine and things for him, and he became indebted to us. Did you ever lose an asset? I didn't personally, no. That must no. be a pretty devastating thing when that happens. For the police officer. Yeah. And, you know, I, the, the recent reporting about China and the fact that we, lost, you know, we allegedly lost a number of agents in China, that, that's the kind of thing that's, that hits at the heart of what we do. Because it's all, again, it's all about protecting those agents. And when you, you read the reports, and I don't know if any of this is true, of, of you know, mistakes that have been, might have been made or a certain piece of technology that might have been used with all of them that, that uh, you know, made them vulnerable, that it's very, very hard for us to read. I don't want to get political here, but I just want to come back to the point about that some people choose to become agents of the CIA in the United States because they believe the United States has an important role to play in the world. And to the extent that people begin to doubt that, that must have an impact on 
the willingness of some people to work for us. Absolutely. I think you would probably know, Michael, that you know, most case officers, you know, we have an ego of our own and we all, you know, we think of ourselves quite highly. In, the in fighter the, pilots of the CIA. The IAA, all that kind of stuff. Yep. But, it's true. But, well, it may be, it may a be so. A bunch of analysts will throw things at their, <laughs> at their radio at this point, but it's true. But, you know, frankly, you know, if we were working for Ghana and trying to do the same work we're doing, we would not be able to recruit the sources that we recruit. You know, the great majority of the people who work for us work for us because they understand the importance of the United States and they understand that the United States takes care of the people that help it. And the United States is trying to do well in the world and is trying to, even if, even in countries that, that work with us that are hostile to the United States, those people see it's in the long-term interest of their country to help the United States because the United States is, you know, means something and, and supports something. So I think it's critical. And, and, you know, that's one of the things I worry about now is we pull away from the world and become less interested in sort of engaging with the world is how that will affect our ability to recruit new sources. And the one thing about this business is that it's not done quickly. You don't walk in and recruit a new spy. Most people don't want to spy or are not in a position to spy or that you can't get access to them to even if they were interested in spying. That's something so, that policymakers don't understand. Right? <laughs> I don't know how many times I was asked, can you get an asset tomorrow to, to be able to tell us X, Y, or Z? Well, frankly, it, it's luck and you know timing. And, and sometimes people who you don't think will, will be sources find themselves in access that you didn't realize. And, and you realize that building relationships over time pay off. I, I know of fantastic sources that people had built relationships with before and helped people out but didn't recruit them as sources because they weren't in positions. When the time came, that person was in the position, they would reach out to someone in the U.S. Embassy or to a, another CIA officer and say, hey, your people have treated me well over the years. I know you take this seriously. I know you'll protect me, and I have information that I would like to share now. When that happens, it's very heartening. John, you not only recruited spies, you, you were in the business of trying to find the spies of other nations in the United States. Right. Can you talk about a little bit about the importance of that? And I think in particular, you, you were involved in the Hansen case. I was. Because the, the Russians are so aggressive, you know, the United States is probably the most powerful and richest country in the history of the world. And Russia has an economy the size of what Portugal. They still have more intelligence officers overseas spying and committing espionage probably than the United States does. And so they take spying very, very seriously, and they've penetrated and recruited sources in almost every, probably every department and agency of the U.S. government over time, and in academia, academia and the media. So working on Russia issues, you often get involved in sort of this counter-espionage issues. And so the Russians will be running, spy, they have spies, Americans that spy against their own country to help Russia. And in the counterintelligence business, which we work hand in glove with the FBI on, the best way for us to uncover traders in the U.S. system is often by recruiting sources overseas. If we recruit someone in the Russian KGB, in the Russian intelligence service, that has access or knowledge or, or pieces of a puzzle that can help us figure out what's happening in the United States, that you know, far and away is the most effective way for us to find who's spying against us. Most of the big cases that we know of you know, the Ames and the Hansons and others happen that way through U.S. sources in Russia, in China, in places that are running spies in the United States. And that's the primary role the agency plays in this counterintelligence world. Absolutely. I'm not aware of, you know, any big spy cases that have been caught by just playing defense. 
we, we work very closely with the FBI, and there's stuff that the FBI does that we cannot do, but it's the same for them. They, they would not be able to be as effective if they weren't getting information and working closely with the agency. So there's quite a large amount, say, of, of Russian intelligence officers in the United States. Some of them will be meeting people in the United States, Americans who are spying for them. The FBI is entrusted to track them, follow them, and try to uncover that. But just like we do overseas, they use techniques and methods that make it hard for the FBI to do that. And so for the most case, almost all cases, it's because we've developed information overseas that help us track spies at home. John, just one more question before we turn to Russia, which is most agency officers and certainly operations officers don't speak publicly after they retire. You've chosen a different path. You speak, you write, you're on this podcast. Why did have you decided to speak out and talk about what the agency does and talk about what's working and what's not working? Why Why have you decided to do that? Well, it's interesting. Yesterday I was on a, did an event with, with General Hayden. And as far as I remember, General Hayden was one of the first ones that really talked inside the agency about uh, our responsibility to try to educate and maintain tethers to the American public and to to make them understand what we're doing so that when things go wrong or things go right, they understand the role the agency plays for good and bad. And, and I thought that was important. I didn't intend really to to have a public voice when I came out. I met Suzanne, who runs the Cypher Brief, and she asked me to, to write some things, and some colleagues and you and others had, had been writing. So I, I wrote a couple short articles on Russia, and it wasn't really until the 2015-2016 the campaign, election, when Russia became a central issue that some people started reaching out to me and asking for my advice on things. And prior to that, a couple of years since I had gotten out, I hadn't done much speaking. The 2016 campaign opened up sort of an interest in, in Russian espionage, what the Russians do, their version of covert and active measures against the United States. And there's a, there's a very small, uh, a small community of people who understand that. And so I, I felt it was important to uh, share what we had learned because I'd spent most of my career – you know, I'd, I'd been in Moscow. I helped to run our worldwide Russia program, worked with the FBI on, on counterespionage cases. And I'd seen the Russian aggressiveness up against us, even through our efforts in, on counterterrorism. And as we moved into terrorism, that the Russians still focused and saw the United States as the main enemy, that I felt that, the, that it was worth, you know, speaking out and educating to the extent that I can. And when it really came out is last January when this uh, Steele dossier came out, and most people read it, and it just looked absolutely insane to people. And there was a small community of us who'd been in Russia and been followed by the Russians and been tried to be blackmailed by the Russians and all these kind of things that the part of it that looked insane was the part that looked absolutely 100% natural to us. <laughs> and therefore, as people sort of asked me about it, I, try, I felt that it was important to try to put that in context. I certainly didn't know if what was true and wasn't, wasn't true, but I did know enough about how the Russians operate to help put that in context. So Russia, and maybe the maybe the place to start here is is at the very top, Vladimir Putin. How would you describe him? What is he like as a person? How should people think about this character? He's a fascinating character, and uh, I recall from your podcast with Mark Kelton, he talked about him as a Czechist. And to those of us who worked in Russia and worked against Russia and have dealt with Mr. Putin and the people around him, I think that's that's fair. So in 1917, when the Bolshevik Party took over Russia and then created the Soviet Union, you know, the first thing they did, you know, before they fed the country and before they put together policies and pulled out of World War One, was was created a 
an intelligence service, a, a security service, a, a service of repression called the Cheka, and it was run by this guy named Dzerzhinsky. And to this day, all people who've involved in Russian intelligence and in, in, in the Russian services call themselves Czechists. And every day, I think it's in December, it's Czechist Day, and they celebrate Czechist Day. And Putin, even as president, always makes sure to be home and celebrate Czechist Day and to go to see the services during those kind of days. And so he is a, is a KGB officer. He's a KGB officer um, from Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. You know, he grew up in post-World War II Russia, which was very poor. The Germans had done tremendous damage and his family had suffered and had people in his family had been killed. He took great pride in, you know, the Soviet Union as it, as it regrew in there and it saw the KGB as the sword and shield of, of the Soviet state. And in the United States, we, most Americans don't tend to think about intelligence. Or we don't think about spying. It's not a central factor of our day-to-day lives. In Russia, it's, you know, movies, TV, radio. It's the largest element of, of their state. And so by joining the KGB, you were joining the elite. That was your way into sort of power and, and um, making something yourself in, in the Soviet Union. And um, he worked on domestic things. So the KGB had a domestic role, like our FBI times 10, and a foreign role. Uh, he always wanted to go overseas. And after a number of years working in domestic, I would say repression, but you know, going after dissidents and that type of thing in the Soviet Union, uh, he was able and was deployed to East Germany, to Dresden. And he was there for, I think, maybe four or five years. And while he was there, it was during the fall of the Soviet Union. So he, thought he saw the whole thing come apart. He did see the whole thing come apart. And even he talks about how formative that was for him, to see the weakness of the state being taken advantage of and how that affected him. Uh, he tells a story when he was in Dresden as a KGB officer that as the East German state started to fall apart, he calls them rioters, I don't know, but rioters came around what was then the Soviet mission, it was a house where he was in Dresden, and you know were threatening to break in, like they had broken into the Stasi, the East German secret police headquarters. And he called to Moscow to tell them this was happening and try to get some military support and help. And he went to his uh, military attaché who, who called Moscow, came back to him, and, and Putin asked him, hey, what, what's Moscow's answer? And, he, and the answer that came to him was, Moscow is silent. And he talks about that as having you know, been formative for him, that when, when state power was needed, when, you know, when the security of the state was at risk, it didn't step up, and from then the country fell. And so he's always had this view, a statist view, uh, a strong view that that the security services of a state should be powerful and be able to protect the state because he lived through the, the fall of a state. So, so what does he want? What are, what are his goals and objectives? Well, I think at this point he wants to stay in power. So he's over, you know, over time since 1999, for a variety of reasons, has sort of taken control of the economy and the media, you know, and the state institutions over time. And He's almost made himself into a modern-day czar, and he uses many of the old Russian traditions and cultural uh, benchmarks to try to – so people look at him as a, as a strong leader and that he controls all of, the, uh, all of the levers of power. It's probably important for people to understand that when he was first elected, this was a fairly democratic state that has since evolved tremendously back towards authoritarianism under his rule. Right. So I, when I was there – Yeltsin was in power. 
I think there was a desire to move towards a more democratic future. I don't know that Yeltsin knew how to do that. And it was an incredibly strong bureaucracy from these security services and others. There was a lot of, as you would guess, a lot of corruption. I think when by the time Putin came in in 1999, through a, a strange variety of events, that he probably wouldn't have been seen as someone who, who could take over power. But he found himself by 1998 and 99 as someone who Yeltsin thought could help protect him if he, if he took power. And I think probably at that time, Putin was interested in making Russia a more modern state, if not a wholly democratic state, one that was more tied to Europe in the, in the modern world. But for a variety of reasons and, and many reasons that he would now uh, look at as you know, resentments and anger at the West, blaming the West for these things, he, he took a more repressive tone. And, and by 2014, 16, you know, he's in full control of the media and the economy. And, and uh, he, he understands that staying in power, you know, if you're a one-man state, there's not a lot of institutions under you. There's not a lot of civil society under you that you can count on. So staying in power, I think, is the thing that's most important to him now. And then what about Russia's role in the world? How does he see that? What are his objectives with regard to foreign policy? <sighs> that's a good question, Michael. I, I think um, now he's very, he sees a very sort of um, zero-sum game. He understands that he needs to be the most powerful person in his neighborhood. He understands that uh, you know, he has to control the areas around him. And he understands, unlike the Soviet Union, that he doesn't have an ideology that can go up against others. And so, and he understands also that a lot of his population understands that the economy is weak and that many people, he and many people around him are corrupt. And so I, I think he's, he's tried to create this sort of cynical view of the world where you know, no system is better than any other system, everybody is corrupt, therefore your smartest move is to tie to your strong leader because he's the only one that can protect you in this dog-eat-dog world. Some of this is, is very Russian. It was, you know, George Kennan was the one who had said a long time ago that you know, the Russian state treats all of its, its neighbors as either enemies or vassals. And if you're not going to be one, you're going to be the other. And, and so in some ways, we see that with Ukraine and the Baltic states and what happened in Crimea and Georgia and others that he needs to have countries around him that are subservient to him. Otherwise, they're going to be enemies. And then when he gets the opportunity to do something, he will. So one of the one of the things that I think, John, that we foreign policy experts, and I would include a large group of us, have failed to do is talk to the American people about why this guy and his behavior is actually a threat to us. If you're sitting in my hometown of Akron, Ohio, some people actually wonder, why should we care that he grabbed Crimea? Or why should we care that he invaded Georgia? How do you think about that? I, I think there's an American, you know, I don't know what the right word, optimism or naivete that looks at Russia and says, hey, you know, they look like us. They look like Europeans. They have a problem with, you know, Islamic fundamentalism like we do. We should be working with them. It just makes sense that they should be natural partners. People who studied Russia for a long time understand, though, that Ru Russia, unlike the rest of Europe, grew up in a completely different way. They never had a renaissance. They never had a reformation. They've always had strong leaders and czars. They, they've lived in a large land mass that doesn't have natural borders and therefore have always been worried about invasion and being 
you you could never be strong enough to protect yourself from invasion. And frankly, they you know they were decimated terribly during World War II, and you know, in the Soviet state, as strong as it was, did fall. And so there's some of the fears they have are not irrational, but what they've done is they've sort of, and Putin has done since, is, is made themselves the anti-America. So their goal, like I said before, is a zero-sum goal. Anything that hurts the United States helps them. And so, uh, as we saw in 2016, efforts to interfere in our elections and and create confusion and disinformation and deception and all of these things is part and parcel of what they're doing to all Western powers. So all throughout Europe, they're trying to support fringe groups, support violent groups, create chaos and, and, and problems. And then around the world, almost anywhere we are, they're trying to do the opposite of what we're doing. So, 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 so it, our commanders in Afghanistan, for example, have said publicly that the Russians are providing support to the Taliban. And you think oh my gosh, why would they support an Islamic extremist organization? But it's really anti-U.S., right? Well, yeah, it's funny. I think, wasn't it, I think Foreign Minister Lavrov one time asked when they, after the Gaddafi Libya, they, someone asked him in a press conference, who are you supporting? And he said, well, whoever the Americans aren't supporting. <laughs> and, you know, we see it, we said in Syria, I think some of the reason they went into Syria, it was to, you know, they saw an opportunity to, to bloody our nose and, and go into Syria you know, what's happened in Ukraine, you know, the shoot down of the Malaysian plane. There's, you know, essentially there's a wide variety of things that they're doing sort of against our interests. And, and some of it is they, they want to be paid attention to. They want respect from us and, and they don't know how to get it through positive means. <laughs> and so I think- They don't have a lot going for them. No, besides, no, 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 besides, no, no. besides nuclear weapons in their intelligence service, right? Exactly. And they, tra- they train circus animals really well. Too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is it possible to deter this guy? What should we do from a Policy perspective? Do you think I should be asking you these questions? You're, no, no, you'd be no, able to no, answer no, the, no, 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 no. You know this place. I don't. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I always want to be careful because I don't want to be saying things that sound too simple. But there is something about the Russian character. Living there, I can remember driving on the streets. The aggressiveness and obnoxiousness of Russians on the streets. You know, in the United States, we have a problem with you know drive-by shootings and aggressiveness on the roads. If those people were in Moscow, there would be nobody left. and Everybody would have killed each other because Russians are so in-your-face and aggressive. And what's interesting about it, though, is every time you've had enough and you push back against Russians that are being this way, they always sort of back down. And uh, I, I subsequently lived in the Balkans where it's the opposite. If you push back, they just escalate, even if it's not in their interest to escalate. And so I do think the Russians respond to force, to power, they despise weakness. They they laugh at us. I mean, I, when when we sort of are trying to, you know, reason with them on certain things. And so, what's happened now is is there's there's been no pushback. So the Russians have quite inexpensively been able to impact and influence, you know, potentially a United States election, and at least, you know, through match on a dry tinder to to spin things up in the United States. But there's been nothing pushback to them to say, not do that again. There's no reason for them not to continue to use these, to weaponize information and, and, and cyber tools against us because there's, there's no pushback. You served in Moscow. What is it like to be a U.S. intelligence officer in Moscow? Huh. Moscow is a unique place for us. In fact, we used to joke about it inside. We called it the Yankee Stadium of Espionage. Michael, as you know, the, you know, the Russians essentially invented the modern police state, and they're the best in the world at espionage and deception and, you know, repression. 
And as part of that process, they were incredibly laser-focused on protecting themselves against espionage from others. Like I mentioned before, in the United States, we don't focus on spy versus spy and, and espionage. In Russia, it's, it's a central factor of, of the way they run their state. So almost everything in the Russian state is, is focused on control and repression. And so and um, stopping what you're trying to and do. And stop it. That's exactly the point. It was interesting. I think the Daily Beast just you know, a month ago put out some old Soviet documents talking about how they use all, all elements of state power to support what the KGB did to defend themselves. And uh, talked about you know, they use everything from the border agents to travel agents to hotels to police, you know, average citizens. You know, it's interesting having served in Moscow. Every time you talk to a Russian citizen, you're not doing that person a favor because the minute you stop talking to that person, the police and the secret police are going to go in and question them and ask them questions and maybe try to turn that relationship back around against you. So for us, it was really interesting. You had to have a deep knowledge of what the capabilities of the KGB were. They had audio and video in each of our homes. It's not hyperbole. So like literally, you know, at two in the morning, if you walked out your door, there was surveillance cars there following you everywhere you'd go. You had to realize that, you know, walking around naked in your house, you're on the video. The uh, people, you know, in the embassy, they had Russian workers who were there to re- would have to report on what we were up to. Every time we would I said, meet someone on the street, that person could be questioned. To the, to the extent that even you know, we have a lot of information about as we would go out to do surveillance runs on the streets, if the Russian surveillance cars were following us and we took a corner and they couldn't see around what we did around that corner, they would bring dogs after the fact. They would often rip up the mailboxes in case we happened to put a letter in the mailbox that might be going to an agent of ours. So, so they're fanatically focused on stopping what we're trying to do. And that's the challenge there. What it does, which is different from a lot of other places that we work, where we were trying to we we're trying to develop new recruits and new spies, Moscow. That's it's almost impossible. What we have to do there is run. When I say run, meet sources that are only the top, only the kind of sources that that can't provide information we can't get any other way, and that are uniquely personality wise, understand the risks they're under, understand how to follow directions, are incredibly careful about the work they do. So. So it's a very different kind of place for us. It's about incredible preparation for each meeting because the point is every time you meet a source in Moscow, you have to be 100% right. The other service has to be right one time. So if they see you meeting someone or if they see something that could lead to one of our sources, that person's, you know, I don't like to use hyperbole, but that person's life is at, is at risk. There's a remarkable book called The Billion Dollar Spy by David Hoffman, a Washington Post reporter that um, tells the story of CIA's recruitment and running of... of uh, Tolkachev. Tolkachev, which people should read if they really want to find out how this works. The really remarkable thing about the CIA and about officers like you is you overcame that challenge that the KGB put in front of you to, to really recruit some amazing people and defend our country. Oh, thanks. So there's a great transition, actually. I'd love to get your thoughts on something, which is I'd love, John, for you to put yourself in the place of a senior Russian intelligence officer perhaps the head of the FSB or the SVR, and put yourself at the beginning of 2016. And you're looking at the United States, um, and you're looking at the election. What are you thinking? What are you doing? And then how does that match up with the fact pattern that you've seen emerge since then? Well, interesting. So I, I think one of the things that when we look back at 2016, we see what the Russians did, we tend to think, this can't be true. They can't have come up with this 
you know, incredibly sophisticated plot that has had this kind of effect. And I think that's true. I think the advantage that the Russians have is that their main goal against their main enemy is to cause pain and to weaken them until they're treated better or the, or the United States changes its policies. Therefore, the advantage they have is every institution of state power, whether it be the FSB, whether it be the SVR, whether it be the foreign ministry, whether it be these trolls and these troll farms and these hackers, and they all have one goal, is just to do damage. It's very easy for them all to go and, and either steal information, if that's what they do as an institution, or hack, if that's what these hackers do, or you know push back or militarily or diplomatically. So I think what happened by 2016, by spring of 2016, is they were all focused in the same direction, and each institution sort of came back with what they had. I mean, this wasn't didn't have to be well thought out. So some hackers come back with stuff from the DNC. And, and you know, if you believe the Steele dossier, they've been collecting information on the Trumps and they've been collecting espionage information over here and over there. So by April, May 2016, they had a variety of tools that they could then use to weaponize against the United States. I think some of the things that were different this time were that the nature of social media and the, and the internet allowed them to weaponize information much faster than they could ever do in the past. It used to be they would put false stories in the Indian press and try to get put it to other agents and work its way up the media food chain until it maybe got to Europe and then hopefully to get a piece of information in the United States. Now you can buy directly straight in and algorithms do the rest for you. There's no editor to, to get around. And so if I'm running the SVR, what I'm doing is I'm taking all this information together. And it's, it's, it's almost opportunism. What do I have? How can I use it? I have a very simple goal to do damage to the United States. What's the best way I can do it? If I have information from collusion, if I have information from hackers, if I have espionage information, how can I use that and weaponize it against the United States? And one thing to remember is Russian intelligence is very, very good. They have a deep understanding of the United States. They know where our fault lines are. They didn't create them, but they know how to, they know how to, uh, make them worse and, how, and, and where to put their finger in on these kind of things. And so, you know, if you're the head of the SVR, you're, you're in a pretty good place. You have a lot of information. You also have a president who is, per, has personal resentment against the Secretary of State, Mrs. Clinton. They hated Mrs. Clinton. The 2012 riots and uh, demonstrations in Moscow, he blamed personally on, on Mrs. Clinton. After the parliamentary the elections. That's right. right. And, you know, when, when Putin was running again himself, I, don't, I think he was surprised by that. I think the Panama Papers, which, you know, showed a, a number of his cronies to be, you know, billionaires, he took as a personal slight and believes the CIA did that information. So if you're the head of the SVR and you have all this information, you have a president who is a risk taker and you have services that are the best in the world at disinformation and psychological warfare and sort of this kind of guerrilla asymmetric stuff, you have a lot of tools and the opportunity came together for them, I think, in 2016. So what... John, what do you make of the outreach, various outreach to the Trump campaign, to the Trump circles by Russians? What do you, what do you make of that? Well, the only narrative we really have about that, if that's true, is, is what was produced by this British intelligence officer, uh, Christopher Steele. And what he claims is that for years and years, the Russians have been in touch with Trump and Trump people as they traveled to Moscow and they did business deals. And therefore, had collected a lot of information on them and what make them tick and done a sort of a quid pro quo deal with them. We will help you with information on your primary opponents and then eventually Mrs. Clinton. If you help us give information on 
Russian oligarchs in the United States, and, and we stay close. Separately, he collected information suggesting that the Russians may have collected compromising information when Mr. Trump traveled to Moscow. This is what the Russians do. They, you know, when I lived there, we, our houses were bugged with video and audio, and they would try to put, they try to use any means to put you in a compromising situation. So that's not unusual. I guarantee they would have collected information on Mr. Trump and tried to develop relationships with him and develop relationships with people around him. That's not surprising. We don't know whether the Trump people, you know, bought that and decided to to help the Russians in this case. But the willingness and the interest in the Russians doing it is absolute. Do you know Chris Steele? When I was in Moscow, Chris Steele was in Moscow. And when I was running our Russia group, he was running their Russia group. So I certainly, I know of him. I have colleagues. British of him, intelligence. British, British intelligence, intelligence officer, officer yeah. SIS. They're, they're, they're foreign intelligence service. And so my experience with him and my experience from colleagues who know him is that he's a a good officer, respected officer. I don't know anything negative about him. And you said earlier that, that you don't know if the dossier that he produced is true, but it certainly parts of it resonated with you. Well, it, it, it felt, the Russian part felt right. That's how Russians operate. The, the compromising material, the collecting information that they can use for blackmail later on. You know, and what the, what the Steele dossier does, we don't know the sources. So I, we don't know... And, and as you well know from your experience, Michael, running an intelligence service is the details matter, like who those sources, what access do they have, you know, how protected are they, how does it fit with other information we have. That's the, that's the heart of running a professional intelligence service, and we don't know that here. But But the narrative that he put together is not irrational. So you have a country that's the best in the world at blackmail and espionage. You have a presidential candidate who's sort of uniquely vulnerable to SP, vulnerable to blackmail and extortion. Just We've seen this recently with the Stormy Daniels stuff, for example. You have campaign people and family people who showed a willingness to collude. We've seen that with New York that when offered stolen material on American citizens from a hostile power, they were interested in that. So there's a willingness to collude. We've seen activities of people around the Trump, like Mr. Cohen and Mr. Manafort, who, some of whom have already been arrested that look like activity dealing with the Russians. Then we've seen a pattern of sort of lies and cover-ups. And then we've seen a pattern of attacking anybody that can hold you accountable. So there's, there's a narrative of collusion that at least seems to make sense. We obviously don't know the details to know if, if that agreement was ever made. And then the narrative of innocence is much harder to, to make because, you know, what it, why would any campaign running for president and trying to win primary votes in Iowa need to be talking to Russians and traveling to Russia and having all these relationships with Russians. And if it's normal, I'm not aware the campaign has ever explained what the reason is for that. Were they dealing with Chinese and Japanese and Indians and others during this campaign? If that's a normal thing, why Russians? And I think rather than attack the system, it would be smart to try to explain what, what is the, what's the other narrative? What's the non-collusion narrative? I don't know what to say. <laughs> You're right. Um, John, you've been very gracious with your time. Just one more question. Leadership. Mm -hmm. Leading men and women, what is an incredibly challenging job? Recruiting people to spy for the United States. I know it was something that you took pride in when you were at the agency. I, I know it was something that you thought about. So how do you think about leadership and what did you learn about it during your time at the agency? Hmm, that's a good question. 
Well, I mean, I was fortunate to have amazing leaders. I mean, the one thing about the agency and the one reason about, thing about that career, and I, I think you can second it, is it's just a marvelous career. You're around marvelous people, brilliant people, focused on a mission. Uh, I think the American people need to know not focused on partisan issues and what happens in Washington, focused externally on trying to collect information that, and produce information that can help the American people. And so in that cadre of people, there's some incredible leaders and managers. And luckily, you've had leadership at the agency since your time and, and General Hayden and others who took this seriously and actually tried to, to inculcate that through, through the organization by creating leadership courses, leadership training. And what's interesting to, my, to me now, I do a lot of work with private sector companies, and there's, there's amazing CEOs, there's amazing talent out in our business community, but oftentimes they don't go through training or they don't focus on leadership as, a, as an issue. Some certainly do, and some are self-taught, and some pick up these things. But at the agency, I think we, we took it very seriously to try to create that next level of leadership. I mean, I think the most important thing a leader can do is, is build up leaders behind him to take over when, I, should, I say he, it shouldn't be he, but whenever that leader, whenever that leader moves on. And, and I, I saw that at the agency. Um, well, the director of operations in particular, I know, was doing leadership programs before the rest of the agency was. Hmm. Yeah, I remember. I mean, even in the agency, early on, I think it was actually the NR division, the domestic division, had created sort of a leadership course, which then took on, and and other people in the in the agency started doing it, and people became interested in in doing that and, and taking it seriously. So, one of the things that that helps us and benefits us is is I guess I don't know, like like the the Navy years ago is in organizations as widespread as ours, where we have people overseas given tremendous responsibility and tremendous authority but also very closely tied and keeping Washington informed at all times. Managing people in a difficult environment, if you're in Afghanistan and you're in Pakistan or you're in Moldova or whatever, with a, with a group of people under you that, that you need to keep motivated, interested, and focused on mission, it becomes like a family and, and taking care of those people becomes very, very important. And, and then how you translate that to Washington so that it matters. I mean, just being out there and doing things is fine, but if you're not informing your leadership at home of what's going on. You're not doing, doing your job. So leadership is something I think that the agency takes very seriously. I think the military sometimes does even more training and better on it than we do, but I think it's something that's, that's growing in the agency. So you were the captain of your lacrosse team yeah. in college for <laughs> four national championships. Did that teach you something about leadership? I mean, I think there's, there's some version of sort of natural leadership, and I think you know these, these Agencies and organizations are looking for people that have had experience or sports or leaderships or, you know, leading their fraternity or, or leading clubs or what have you. So I, I, I think the agency tends to be a, a collection of, of sort of natural leaders. And then to the extent that we can build upon that and, and use the experiences that we gain through our time overseas or our time, you know, with, with hard issues in the White House and on Capitol Hill – we, we can make, make those leadership tools and those leadership skills even more important to the next generation, yeah. Um, John, you had, um, you had one, I think, particularly challenging leadership job, and that was you took over a station where the previous station chief had been arrested. Huh. What was that challenge like? Yeah, it was actually really very interesting. Um, it, was, it was an important station in the Balkans during the Balkan Wars. And interestingly, I had been the deputy in that station several years before. So I had a good knowledge of the language and the culture and some of the key issues there. And so in some ways, I think I, I was fortunate. I was working in our Russia operations group at headquarters, 
And Mike Sulik, who was the head of the area that oversaw that, he eventually became the head of the clandestine Legendary service. Legendary officer. <laughs> called me in one day and said, uh, the, the chief of this station has just gotten arrested and, and beaten up and is getting kicked out of the country. He was caught running the, the head of their military service. So the head of the army that for this country was a spy for us and was caught, sadly, and it's very unfortunate, and asked me to then go out again. My wife was not thrilled about that because the time we had been there before, it had been sanctions and very difficult. But it was good for me because I felt that I knew the issues, I knew the people, I knew how important it was. And so it actually felt very comfortable to, to go in to do that. And it was also very comfortable as a chief. One of the things I think a lot of people don't understand, a chief in our services overseas, you run a group of people who are trying to, to commit espionage and run spy cases, but you also are doing cooperation with local services. One of the most important things that we do overseas is working with counterparts overseas. And oftentimes, even in, in states that aren't totally friendly to us, we have good intelligence relationships with the head of those services. We wouldn't be able to catch the spies that we do, and we wouldn't be able to have some of the success we don't do is if we don't have those relationships. So A big part of my job when I was deputy was to help maintain and develop those relationships by meeting those those heads of services when they came to Washington and then traveling overseas. Uh, no, absolutely. And so, so maintaining them and nurturing those those relationships are, are really important. And that's one of the things we, we see now is you, you don't want to uh, you know embarrass those countries or, or treat them bad because there's, there's countries, none of this is easy and none of it is, a lot of it's complicated. And so there's countries that work against us on some ways and they help us on other ways. So in this country, you know, they had, they had arrested the previous boss and there was a lot of reasons for us not to work together, but there were a lot of reasons to try to get past that and work together. And I think having been there before and knowing some of the key people allowed me, at least with my foreign counterparts, to move past that and get better and then help sort of the trauma of the people in the station in our office who'd, who'd been through a very difficult situation where people were screaming and people got kicked out and the ambassador was unhappy and you know our, my predecessor on the front page of the paper to help those people understand what had happened and that they still had support from Washington and we still had an important job to do. I found that a very um, satisfying and, and enjoyable. It, it was tough, but it was fun for that reason. So just one more question. What would you want the American people to know about the Central Intelligence Agency? Well, particularly at this time in our history, I want people to know that it's a professional organization. There's a lot of stories in the media. There's a lot of information out there suggesting that our institutions like the FBI and the CIA are partisan. The notion that there's a deep state that's trying to overthrow the president. That there's a deep state that has different interests than you know the, the party in power. And that's simply not the case. Michael, as you know, you know, in the CIA, the director might be an appointed person by a new president. Everybody else that works in that organization is a professional who's dedicated to the mission and has worked there forever. I was there for 28 years, overseas for most of that time, working very closely with colleagues. And I, don't, I never had a conversation with anybody that was partisan in nature or talked about helping one party or another. You know, and it wasn't, in fact, until I retired and got on you know, Facebook or Twitter that I actually realized, hey, that guy's like right wing or that guy's left wing. I mean, it just wasn't part of our DNA. Our DNA was, was nonpartisan, professional, mission-focused. If anything, we were, we were politically naive. Yeah, that's true. That's like true. And, and, I, and that's why it was difficult for people like you that grew up in a mission-focused, you know, foreign policy-centric organization that all of a sudden have to go down to the White House and get beat up by right. or Congress. people. Or con yeah, Congress. Get beat up 
that all of a sudden have to learn how to deal with that interagency and those type of things that most of us were glibly and gl- gladly happy that we didn't have to deal with. It's one with. of the benefits of being overseas. Exactly. <laughs> it's the benefit of being overseas. John, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. It was fun. That was John Seifer. I'm Michael Morell, and this was Intelligence Matters. If you like the show, please tell others about us and leave us a comment on iTunes or send us an email at intelligencematterspod at gmail.com. Please join us next week. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.